0: Hi, my name is Yasmin Tarehi and this is Gateways to Awakening, where we host one-on-one conversations with leading experts in wellness, well-being and spirituality. I'm so excited to introduce our guest today. Today's episode is with Deepak Chopra, founder of the Chopra Foundation and Chopra Global, a modern-day health company at the intersection of science and spirituality. Chopra is also a clinical professor of family medicine and public health at the University of California, San Diego. And he's the author of over 90 books translated into over 43 languages. And for the last 30 years, he's just been at the forefront of the meditation revolution. And he's written over 92 books on success, fulfillment, wholeness, and plenty of different advice on how to cultivate a sense of abundance in times of fear and insecurity. Deepak also made a major impact on my life when I was in my 20s living in New York City and started listening to many of his CDs, which really transformed the way that I saw myself in the world. So thank you so much and welcome to the show, Deepak.
1: Thank you. It's great to be with you.
0: Yeah, likewise. So Deepak, just to kick it off, uh, what does it actually mean in your words to be human versus to be pure consciousness? I think a lot of people uh, have a lot of trouble understanding what it even means to be consciousness.
1: Yeah. So this is um, a very important topic right now, because if you go Google the following question, uh, or even go on Wikipedia or wherever, and you ask the question what are the 125 open questions in science? And the first open question in science is what is the universe made of? And you would think we know that it's made of atoms, particles, force fields, gravity, electromagnetism, etc. But that's less than less than 4% of the universe. And of that, 99.999% is invisible interstellar dust. Uh, according to current science, uh, there are 2 trillion galaxies, at least 706 trillion stars and uncountable trillions of planets, uh, possibly 60 billion um, habitable planets in just the Milky Way galaxy, based on something called uh, the possibility of a biosphere, uh, which is uh, uh, an environment similar to ours. It's called the Goldilocks zone. But in any case, um, the visible universe, which is all of that, is 0.01%. The rest is invisible interstellar dust. Now the problem with that is that the visible or atomic universe which is all of that you know 2 trillion galaxies on and on it's made of atoms and atoms and particles are also waves when you're not looking for them they disappear into emptiness and so the shortest answer to what's the universe is made of is it's made of nothing and then that leads to the second question, which is called the heart problem of consciousness, uh, which says, what's the biological basis of consciousness? And uh, no one knows how atoms or molecules or force fields or gravity create conscious beings like you and me, or other conscious beings, animals, plants, whatever. So if the universe is made of nothing, why does it look like everything else? That's called the hard problem of consciousness for which there is no solution at the moment. And science keeps promising us that there will be a solution. Um, but science is based on a fundamental on several fundamental flaws even though it's very successful. <laughs> right now, you and I are having a conversation on Zoom. And we wouldn't have that if we didn't have science, we wouldn't have jet planes, we wouldn't have uh, the internet, we wouldn't have transistors, we wouldn't have anything that we take for granted. 80% of our technology comes from the new science of quantum mechanics, etc. So these are two very important questions. And why are they important questions? Is because they deal with the most fundamental nature of existence. We know we exist, but um, then our existence these days anyway is governed by the mythology that we call science. Here are the problems with current science mythology, not with its practical applications as technology, which we know they work. So one is subject-object split, which has there's you and there's everything else. But you and everything else are part of one activity. We call it the universe. So the subject-object split is artificial, although useful. Otherwise, you wouldn't be able to do science. The second is... um, something called naive realism, which is also referred to as scientific realism, which says that reality is what is perceived by the five human senses, period. So, you know, you and I have a very narrow bandwidth of experience through the five senses, less than 0.01% actually. And it's very species-specific. What we experience is human experience as governed by the five human senses. What does the universe look like to a snake that navigates through infrared? Or um, a bat that knows reality through the echo of ultrasound? Or even your dog, when you call your dog by its name, does it hear the same sound that you pronounce? Because it has a slightly different nervous system. So what we call everyday reality, our perceptual experience is not really an objective reality, although that is the presumption of science, that it's objective, it's a species specific experience governed by, you know, uh, what the human nervous system and its five senses determine for us. That's the second problem with current science The third aspect of naive realism says that if humans disappeared, then the universe would look exactly the same to every species um, and it would still be there as the human experience, which is obviously ridiculous. So uh, why is all this important? The reason it's important is throughout the ages, humans have asked questions like, um, what is reality? What is the meaning of death? Does God exist? Do we have a soul? What happens to we after we die? And every iteration of that, right from the beginning of time, has been satisfactory to those people who are in are embedded in that mythology. So, for many Christians, God is a dead white male in the sky. No one's found that, but in general. Um, mythologies that go back to the Middle Ages, thought of God as some kind of of a usually male persona. Although if you go deeply into the religious experience, then you realize that God doesn't have a name or a male or female identity. In fact, God is without form or what they call God is without form. The religious experience is very authentic. Yeah, it uh, says we are beyond space and time, that our fundamental nature is truth, goodness, beauty, harmony, and death happens to an experience, not to you. So that's where I am. And consciousness is just that in which all experience occurs, the experience of the mind, the experience of the body, and the experience of the world. Consciousness has no form, no location, and therefore is infinite.
0: So, uh, Deepak, um... Sort of to unpack that because there's a lot there, <laughs> uh, but you know. So, do you believe in a higher power then, or what? Because I I want to understand this a little bit more. Like, what's your perspective on why we are we are actually here?
1: There is only a transcendent, how, higher power. Everything else is an artifact.
0: Mm. And do we have, I guess, like if you could look at our life and our choices, you will also talk about something in a lot of your work called pure potentiality. Um, So does that mean that there's a number of possibilities that are happening at the same time, or is some part of our lives sort of fixed in terms of the the optionality that we have?
1: Yeah, well, fundamental reality is pure potentiality, which means it's always, at all times, infinite possibilities. And um, it is at all times creative. It is at all times self organizing. It is at all times self regulating. And it is at all times um, self evolving. Uh, through the ages, people have used different words for that. So, God, Ein Sof, Allah, Brahman, it all refer- refers to one single divine, formless, infinite reality. And ultimately, that's all there is. And so when we say, um, who are we? Well, we usually refer to the body-mind and the experiences of the body-mind. But uh, that in itself is in a way an artifact. You know, when you say uh, there's a soul in the body, it can't be found. So there's only two Two answers, two possible possibilities to that. Either you don't have a soul or it's not in the body. And the latter seems to be more probable. You are not in the body. The body is an experience in your awareness. What is it that knows the body? The changing body. What is it that knows the changing brain? What is it that knows the changing mind? What is it that knows the changing experience? If you just go deeply into this question, who am I? you find that you will become terribly confused <laughs> and not only will you, you will be bewildered. <laughs> uh, the bewilderment itself is the holy experience. Everything else that is an explanation works for those people who are embedded in that explanation. So yes, fundamental reality is at all times, the immeasurable potential of all that was, all that is, and all that will ever be. Now, if you go to some modern theories of cosmology, like string theory, and one of the interpretations of quantum physics, uh, which is called the multiverse, Um, And if you read, say, you know, some of the cutting-edge books these days by, say, Sean Carroll, who's the head of physics at uh, Caltech, you couldn't get a better position. Same place where Feynman um, um, was a professor. Uh, Sean sits on the same desk as Chef Feynman. Einstein was a visiting professor there. The current theories of cosmology... I say there are infinite universes, infinite universes, and that uh, there are infinite uh, versions of you, but they're all based on mathematical string theories and other ways of interpreting quantum mechanics, but turns out they may be right, that in fact, we are infinity means infinity, it cannot be compromised. So um, infinity is not subject to birth or death. It's always at all times manifesting. And when I think of infinity, I think of pure consciousness as the ultimate reality. Uh, you could give it other names; it doesn't matter.
0: What do you think happens after we die? Then, like, what's the what's the next phase for you? If you want, to, you know, what what's sort of like your own?
1: Depends on what you mean by "we." I mean, if you think. Um, We means the body mind, which in itself is a perceptual trick. I mean, we say I have a body. Which one? You started as a fertilized egg and now you are what you look like on Zoom. And one day, if you are lucky enough, you'll be old and you'll be going all the way to dusty death. The body mind is an experience. It's not you. If I asked you just now to look around you and I just ask you one question. What do you see? Let me ask you that question. Where are you now in your home or wherever? What do you see?
0: I am in Los Angeles in my apartment and I see my mom's painting in front of me and some plants and a couch. (laughs) It's in my office. So a lot of books.
1: And you also see your body, right?
0: Yes. I also see my body.
1: Okay. So what is it that is having this experience Um, of your own body-mind, because you also experience thoughts, you're answering my questions. So you are right now having an experience of body-mind and your thoughts and all the objects, but you didn't say the most important thing. Most of what you see is empty space. And nobody talks about that. In fact, the body, mind, and, empty, um, and all the objects that you see wouldn't be there unless there was the emptiness of space, which is infinite uh, right now. But we don't even talk about it. So what happens to you? Just like if the building is destroyed, the space is still there because it can't be created or destroyed. Uh, what happens to you after death is... Absolutely nothing. You're there right now. Even to answer my question, you had to go back to consciousness, which has no location in space-time. So, what ha- I did write a book, Life After Death, and it has all the versions of um, of um, of all the religions. And my opinion is they're all equally untrue, or all equally true if you identify yourself as a body-mind and Um, surrounded by objects. But if you go deep into the nature of consciousness, then where you go after death is where you are right now. Um, And you can't even have a thought without consciousness. You can't answer my questions without consciousness. You can't see your body without consciousness. And you can't see the objects without consciousness. So who's you? That you is not subject to birth or death. Uh, It's just now you can project any reality That you want. And those are the heavens, hells, purgatories, and lokas of all the religions, the bardos, the heavens, the hells. They're projected realities. And just like the one we are in now, it's a projected reality. We don't think that it's a projected reality, but if you understand naive realism, then everything you experience is projected. So, you know, Wittgenstein, the German philosopher, said, Our life is a dream we are asleep, but once in a while we wake up enough to know that we're dreaming. That's why I joined your podcast because it's about waking up to reality and waking up from the dream. Same thing that the Buddha said, this lifetime of ours is transient as autumn clouds. To watch the birth and death of beings is like looking at the movements of a dance. A life is like a lifetime. Uh, Lifetime is like a flash of lightning in the sky rushing by like a torrent down a steep mountain. So when the Buddha was uh, so-called, his body-mind was dying, um, his uh, disciple, favorite disciple, Ananda, said, Are you God? Are you a messenger? Are you a messiah? All those questions. And the Buddha said no to all of them. And finally he said, Well, then who are you? And he said, I'm awake. So when you're awake you can project any reality and therefore all the versions of religion are equally true because they're projected versions you can you can choose your heaven your hell your hell even now you know because heaven hell purgatories and lokas are states of consciousness not necessarily locations in space time although we project them as locations in space time
0: so Deepak then if we're projecting our reality why is there so much suffering and pain in the world it feels like there's so many people in mental health crises right now especially with the pandemic are we cre- are we creating that are we co-creating that
1: Yeah we are I mean anything that is projected uh, as reality our everyday reality is a projection of our collective divided, separate, confused, uh, um, indoctrinated, uh, conditioned mind. And that includes climate change. It includes um, the the pandemics that result as a result of uh, what we call uh, environmental unsustainability. Uh, so what we projected today is a world of conflict, of war, of terrorism, of um, climate change, of pandemics. And they're all human experiences by contrast. You can't have experience without contrast. So you can't have a heart without a cold or, a, or um, up without a down. And the experience of life is suffering and pleasure at the same time. And this is um, the way experience occurs. You can't have one without the other. Joy and suffering go together. What we call freedom is beyond that. Uh, knowing yourself as uh, who you really are before the projection. Having said that, the divided mind right now has never been as polarized as before. So what we're risking at this moment, uh, if you know, if you divide the entire history of the universe um, into a 24 hour period, we are less than one minute away from what could be called extinction of the human species as a result of this divided mind. And uh, there's no way you can solve this by favoring one over the other. You know, like I'm right-wing, I'm left-wing, I'm Muslim, I'm Hindu, I'm Buddhist, I'm Christian, because everybody uh, is convinced that their version is right. And yet, um, you know, all experiences by contrast, otherwise there's no experience. The only way out of the solution right now is for us us to realize that there's something that every religion has talked about is called love. And love is not a mere sentiment. Love is not a mere emotion. It's the ultimate truth at the heart of creation, that we are one undivided wholeness, Uh, differentiating, not even separating, differentiating into innumerable minds, innumerable bodies and innumerable experiences. Differentiation is not separation. When, When you were a fertilized egg or a stem cell, that was just one cell, 50 replications. And now there's heart cells and kidney cells and brain cells. They don't think of themselves separately. Otherwise they'd be doing their own thing. The stomach doesn't say, You know, why should I digest food for the liver? What is it doing for me? Or, you know, the immune system, why should I protect the whole body? What is it doing for me? Or any part of your body is differentiated from one single reality, and so is the universe. When we experience that, that experience is called love. Uh, which is the ultimate truth at the heart of creation, which every religion has also said that that's fundamental truth.
0: Yeah. I want to, I want to double click on the idea of love, but before that, I actually want to go back to some of these concepts because I think it's really important um, this projection piece. So we are projecting our own reality, but what about uh, when we're in the includes,
1: by the way, your experience of your body and mind. So, when we say we, I'm not uh, referring to your body-mind, which are also a projection, because what is it that observes or knows the body-mind? It's you as consciousness, and that you as consciousness is infinite. But it is now projecting a particular state of consciousness. So if you want to know what you're projecting, just look at yourself and look at the world around you. That's your projection, and now you interpret it.
0: And so what about like other people in our lives, like family and friends, like are we also projecting our experiences with them or are they in their own kind of projection and are we just sort of playing that out?
1: There are certain projections we agree on that we made up like Wall Street or latitude or longitude or Greenwich Mean time. Why not Mecca mean time? Why not Botswana mean time? These are human constructs that make experience and interaction between us possible. Also money. We made it up. We made nation states. We made up the religions. What is behind all this is uh, what we call pure love, basically. And that is differentiating itself, not separating itself. The big difference between separation and differentiation. So each of... Our relatives and friends has their own version of reality. But there are certain versions that we agree on: latitude, longitude, money, Wall Street, nation states, gender, male, female, these days, more than that, you know, non-binary, whatever. These are human constructs. And they're, they're useful. And as soon as you have language, you know, they, they say that there was the word and the word was made into flesh. What language does is it separates and language is a way of actually creating maps and also creating um, what we call notations as uh, not only maps, but as categories. So every thought creates a map or a category, but we mistake the map for the territory. You can't eat the menu. You have to actually eat the food. And yet that's what we're trying to do right now. We mistake the map for the territory, a phrase coined by Alfred Korzybski, a great cognitive scientist. Mm.
0: So Deepak, um, I want to actually talk about the practical applications of this here because like the world, like you said, is becoming more and more polarized and people have sort of lost their idea of like themselves and also what it even means to love. So for people who are listening, I think that maybe just like a common example could really ground this. So let's say someone hurts you or someone disagrees with you or creates a lot of you know, I don't know, uh, suffering in your own life. How do you react to that? I guess maybe the question is like, how do you deal with conflict and suffering? Do you never get taken off or is it just your perspective?
1: No, I don't get taken off, but it took me a while to recognize that. So if you're hurt by someone, you, I ask myself, what is it that is feeling hurt? And I realized that that which is feeling hurt is a fictional character, that is believing in its own story. And so is the other person, a fictional character that believes in their own story. And so the conflict recycles eternally, forever. But if you go to the most fundamental values of existence, which are called empathy, compassion, joy, love, and equanimity, then you don't have to suffer. You know, empathy is feeling what another feels. So a mother knows that. She feels empathy for her baby. Or even if you have a pet, if somebody uh, hurts, physically hurts that pet, you wince. You wince because you feel the pain. And so empathy is feeling what other people feel. Empathy then spontaneously leads to what we call compassion, which is the desire to alleviate suffering. And very interestingly, you find that that in itself makes you feel better. When you alleviate suffering, you, what you call me, feels better. And then compassion leads to what we call love in action, because love without action is meaningless, and action without love is irrelevant. But when love in action occurs, then the whole world wants to support you. And when you do that, you feel joy. And when you feel that, you feel equanimity. And you also realize that every concern you had was um, basically coming from a fictional identity. But this is a process. This is what we call the spiritual experience. And the great teachers uh, of religion had this experience. Everyone from Muhammad to Jesus to uh, the Buddha and many luminaries, prophets of the Old Testament, they had this experience. But it was not understandable to people who only identified with their egos so we end up worshiping the messenger when we should actually be trying to have the experience ourselves. If I'm pointing to the moon, you should be looking at the moon, not worshiping my finger.
0: <laughs> right, right. I mean, I found in my own life, uh, and anecdotally, that to convince, it's it find it. I find it very difficult to convince someone about the world of consciousness if they are just completely living in this, I guess, three-dimensional world of the, f- the five physical senses. Um, how do you, like, what do you say to people to sort of, I guess, convince them is the wrong word, but how do you kind of encourage people to see outside of the construct that we're living in? Because I think that is also so difficult. Um, some people just have very fixed points of view and uh, are just less open to a new imp- interpretation of the conceptualization of reality.
1: Yeah, So you can't convince another person. In fact, there's a phrase <laughs> a man convinced against his will is of the same opinion still. So you actually never <laughs> try to, you know, I've given up trying to be right. And I feel that the only way that uh, people will change if they find you, um, the change that you are going through. So, you know, the, the ancient wisdom traditions say, uh, Peace can't be created by peace activists. And these days, I think when I look at Nobel Prize winners in peace, I find them not to be peaceful at all. And they're just peace activists, and some of them are angry peace activists. So if you are peaceful, if you're totally established in peace consciousness, And people around you will cease to feel hostility. And that's the proof. And not what you say, not what you do, but your presence. So we can only be the change you want to see in the world. And it saves a lot of energy and time trying to convince other people because they won't be convinced anyway.
0: So, okay. And then for folks who are starting out, what's the advice that you'd give them in terms of like how to become more aware and conscious. Do you have any kind of, I guess, do you have yeah. a morning, morning routine? I <laughs>
1: say, you know, engage daily in some reflection, ask yourself, who am I? What do I want? Do I have a purpose? What am I grateful for? That opens the window, by the way, the reflective self-inquiry. The others take some time to be silent. You know, Rumi, the great Sufi poet said God's language is silence. Everything else is poor translation. So take some time to be still and silent, which means meditation. Spend some time in nature and give other people your attention, affection, appreciation, and acceptance. And soon you will feel better. And so will those around you.
0: Mm, Got it. What about uh, the meaning of time? You know, you talk about us being this infinite consciousness. What is the purpose of time? Like, what does time mean to you?
1: Time is a human construct. I don't think uh, any other um, species experiences time. So, you know, to be human is to be both conflicted, but also to be godlike in a way, because we are the only people who can create our reality. We cannot the only people who can accelerate our evolution. But at the same time, we are in conflict because we question, have questions, good and evil, birth and death. Um, you know, joy and suffering. Uh, It's it's a byproduct of what we call free will and the ability to imagine. So time is an imaginary construct, just like latitude and longitude are imaginary constructs. The only time is no time, which means now, (laughs) Uh, and now is not in time. Now, as soon as you say what's happening in now, then there's time. So time is subject-object split, and it's the movement of thought using the ego as an internal reference point. The moment you go beyond the ego, there's no time, and that's very joyful.
0: Wow. Um, And Deepak... Can you talk to us about what attracted you to this work? And I mean, you've written 92 books and dedicated a lot of your life to this. I know about your journey, but I think for our audience, it would be really helpful to talk about your your kind of childhood and then also um, becoming a physician and how you how you kind of transitioned to this space and to this world and also what you've learned about yourself in the process.
1: I had a magical childhood, I grew up in India and I went, um, you know, my best friends were Parsis and Muslims and Buddhists and Hindus and the best part was I got to celebrate all the all the religious um, festivals, whether <laughs> it was Maharam or Holi, it didn't matter. So that was very magical for me. And then I went to medical school and then, you know, I became like everybody else fascinated by the human body. I thought that's all there is. And then I came to the United States. I trained in internal medicine, endocrinology, neuroscience. I then became very fascinated with the what is now called mind-body connection, which is also an oxymoron because there's no mind-body connection. They're the same thing. just. Like space-time are the same thing. Mass-energy are the same thing. Um, Body-mind are the same thing. You can't have a mind without a body and you can't have a body without a mind. They're both different aspects of consciousness. So I moved from, you know, what is called uh, just looking at the physical body anatomically to looking at the body-mind as a unit. And then, strangely enough, I started to question even that. What is fundamental reality and now this is where we are so i i didn't have a plan it just happened
0: um you you talk about um your medical training and endocrinology and i'm curious like what does our biology have to do with our spirituality i think in maybe one of your books i remember reading a section about the endocrine system and um how you know how do they all kind of function together
1: Sure. So endocrinology is the study of hormones, and um, you know they govern almost every function in our body, from reproduction to metabolism to growth. Um, But then I went a little deeper into what is called neuroendocrinology—the molecules of emotion that now everybody talks about: serotonin, dopamine, oxytocin, opiates. Um, There's a new one these days that people are talking about called anandamide. So these are molecules that actually um, uh, are in the brain, or we found them in the brain, but now they seem to be everywhere in your stomach, in your heart, in your gut. In fact, 80% of the serotonin in your body comes from your gut through the microbiome. So molecules, I think um, neurochemicals, as we call them, I don't call them anymore neurochemicals. Uh, They're uh, molecules of emotion and they mediate what's happening in our consciousness um, and how that affects our biology. Uh, But then, you know, if you really go deeper into this, even molecules are human constructs for modes of knowing and experience in consciousness. So even molecules are human constructs, just like everything else. And that's what makes the human experience so interesting because uh, we have all these dilemmas, but we also have all this creativity.
0: Right, right. And I mean, so in some form, like, can you actually, I guess, control your biology with your consciousness? You mentioned that earlier, but I, I want to double-click on that. Well, we
1: have two systems. One is called the voluntary nervous system, which and if I have to ask you to lift your arm or walk from here to there or take a train to, to Connecticut, then you use your voluntary nervous system. But there's another part of your body called the autonomic nervous system, which is uh, autonomic because you're not even aware of it. It's regulating your blood pressure right now, your... Uh, self-regulation, homeostasis, even um, heart rate variability, everything that's 99% of what your your biology is doing is automatic. And so what is regulating that is consciousness. Can we use consciousness to regulate um, um, uh, our voluntary nervous system? We do it all the time. Every time you make a choice, you do that. But in the deeper reality, shouldn't be separating one from the other you can learn to regulate your heart rate you can learn how to lower your blood pressure you can learn to regulate your emotions you can learn to regulate your biology that's actually a much more um, interesting way of um, living life than to just make uh, choices based on the conditioned mind which is a bundle of conditioned reflexes and nerves constantly being triggered by people and circumstance into predictable outcomes. So most people, other than when they wake up are like um, algorithms, Uh, you know, they're basically robots, and uh, um, life goes by, uh, and you end up being a robot all (laughs) your life, um, which is not really a very interesting way to live.
0: Oh yeah, it's so interesting. Um I you know, I have read in a lot of places that you could change in 1 minute uh, versus 10 years. It really just depends on your awareness uh of of your own limitations. And I think it's so interesting when we dive into our own pers- perspective on reality because I think a lot of us assume that we know, we know certain things, but every it seems like there's so much more that is left to interpretation. And I, I always just find that I'm actually so humbled by what I don't know every time I learn something new, you know, like when you have a total complete shift in your own reality um, and everything changes.
1: Yeah. That's what, again, Rumi, a great Sufi poet said, uh, exchange your cleverness for bewilderment because the more you know, the more your ignorance will be revealed.
0: Mm-hmm. Which is what
1: Socrates said. The only thing I know is I don't know.
0: Mm, that's powerful. Wow. Uh, so Deepak, you recently wrote a new book uh, about being metahuman. Uh, I'd love to uh, have you tell us, like, what does that word mean? What does it mean to be a metahuman? And why did you write the book?
1: Meta means uh, beyond. And human, in this case, means beyond the human divided conditioned mind, the awake mind which is all we've been talking about. And, you know, recently I've started taking kind of forays into what we call the metaverse and meta adventures. And actually on social media, I'm being attacked. They think I'm working for, Mark Zuckerberg, his company to meta. But for me, meta human plus meta reality is the metaverse, which means if you wake up, you can create your own reality. And that's why I wrote the book.
0: Mm, Yeah, it's so funny. I I was just thinking about that too, the metaverse. And (laughs) Hmm. I think that's a cosmic joke there.
1: (laughs) Absolutely. Uh,
0: So what do you think has surprised you the most since you've been doing this work? Like, is there anything that kind of sticks out that is a, a surprise to you?
1: The most surprising thing is that people take their existence for granted. And they get, they're not, I mean... We should be bamboozled and surprised that we exist. And if you if you are surprised every moment that you exist, then your existence is full of joy, wonder, curiosity. It's an adventure, it's a play. And you also then are not very defensive about your own projections, and you don't attack other people for their own for their projections. So the surprise to me is that we're not surprised. <laughs>
0: <laughs> oh, I love that. And yeah, I guess people are unconscious about being unconscious, essentially. That's it. So what do you think is the future of humanity, especially in the last year and a half or so since the pandemic started? I mean, there's been so much movement. I feel like there's been so much transition and change in so many people's lives. Like I just have noticed even my own life, there's been a lot of uh, f- displacement of friends and family and community, and I'm sure that's going to, you know, continue to, to grow. Um, so, I'm, yeah, I'm just curious, like, what do you, like, what do you think is the future for, for us or what do you think are the possibilities for us, <laughs> maybe the dominant possibilities?
1: One thing that the pandemic at least showed me was that as soon as we returned to our cages, in other words, lockdown then um, nature started to repair herself. People were breathing better in Bangalore. Um, you could see the stars at night in Hyderabad. You could see the Himalayas. Nature was celebrating. So who's the, who's the pathogen uh, on this planet? It's human beings. And so, you know, last the last extinction was 65 million years ago. When a meteorite fell on this planet and dinosaurs disappeared within a matter of weeks and we emerged. So one thing is to take for to know that you know humans are not needed for the viability of the biosphere. In fact, they are the pathogen. The other is this is an opportunity to be more humble, to come together uh, for the whole world and focus on a more peaceful, just, sustainable, healthier and joyful world. We right now have all the technologies to reverse uh, climate change, to resurrect the human microbiome, the genetic information of the planet and create a more socially and economically just world. But we're not doing it because we're not emotionally and spiritually uh, connected to our own self. And if we were, then we'd have a different story, even the words we use, you know, there's me and the environment, when in fact, there's only the biosphere. And, you know, you are not living in an environment, um, the earth is recycling as your body, the rivers and waters are recycling as your circulation, the air is your breath, the stars created the atoms in your body. So you have a personal body, and you have a universal body, and they're all both equally yours. You put a plant in a vacuum, it dies. You put an animal in a vacuum, a rabbit, it dies. You put them both together, they thrive. So I think our number one focus today should be, first of all, how do we spiritually connect? How do we bond emotionally? How do we share a vision together? And how do we change our story of separation to love? That's it.
0: I love that so much. Oh, and uh, we we spoke about this a little bit about love and I want to just go into it deeper because I think, you know, like you said, this is kind of like the the reason why we're here, right? And we'll be kind of like the solution of everything if we go to a place of love rather than polarity. Um, and so can you talk to us about what love actually means in your words and in sort of like an 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 unconditional concept too, because I think for a lot of people we tend to see love as conditional um, in our own reality. So like, what what does love mean actually?
1: Conditional love is not love; it's self-importance. That's it, and it's fear. Mm.
0: Um,
1: but love, even though we experience it as a sentiment, it's our desire to find unity consciousness. To find liberation from suffering so love is the ultimate truth at the heart of creation on a practical level you just say every action if it's motivated by love gives freedom if it's motivated by fear it imprisons you and so love is not the opposite of hate love is the opposite of fear
0: Um, So Deepak, has there been any kind of mentor or guide for you on your journey, or was this really like a journey of kind of self-discovery for you? No, no,
1: I've had lots of mentors, including a personal teacher. Um, I've read all the philosophies and the theologies and the religions of the world. I've written, uh, from my point of view, the biographies of Muhammad and Jesus and Buddha and some of the prophets of the Old Testament. But right now, my only source of inspiration is silence.
0: Oh, wow. And how long do you sit in silence each day? Do you have like a...
1: I do a morning routine of silence and yoga and then uh, evening um, before I go to bed, um, sometimes up to two hours of silence um, as a, before I sleep.
0: Wow. And what uh, books have kind of inspired you on this path, uh, other than your own, which we'll include, but are there any other maybe books or resources? In
1: recent times, I would say Aldous Huxley's, um, uh, The Perennial Philosophy and J. Krishnamurti's um, book, Freedom from the Known, Freedom from the Known. He said the known is the prison, the unknown is the freedom.
0: Mm, Okay, I love that. Uh, and last comments. I mean, what do you want to tell our listeners about their health, wellness, well-being? What's your kind of main takeaway and call to action for our audience? Uh, the,
1: the, the latest science suggests that only five percent of disease-related gene mutations are fully penetrant. Ninety-five are. Ninety-five um, percent of illnesses is related to lifestyle. So, sleep, meditation, stress management, exercise, mind-body coordination balancing your rhythms emotional resilience and self-awareness are the key to a good healthy long life i have an experiment that i'm starting um, in um uh, in january january one It's called the longevity experiment and you can register for it called uh, by sending an email to longevity at choprafoundation.org we are seeing how we can extend not only lifespan, which is unimportant, how we can extend health span. So you live to a ripe old age, you can have the wisdom of experience and the biology of youth, and you can help other people alleviate their suffering as well. So that's my last comment.
0: Oh, love that. Okay. And then people can find it um, at your website?
1: Email, longevity at ChopraFoundation.org. And you'll You'll hear from us before January 1.
0: Excellent. And are there resources that you can point folks to in order to learn more about you and get more involved in the Chopra Foundation?
1: Right. So uh, we two websites. One is choprafoundation.org and the other is just called chopra.com, which is the Chopra global um, business part of our what we do uh, with corporations and well-being in general. But Chopra Foundation is where you'll find all the research and all the other aspects we're doing. We have a program called NeverAlone.Love to prevent suicide prevention, especially among teens. So do check out www.NeverAlone.Love.
0: Mm, I love that so much. Oh Deepak thank you so much for your time I feel like this, this went so fast uh, thanks so much and
1: thank you send me a link when you're ready
0: Okay yes we'll do <laughs> Thanks Okay all the best bye. God bless Thank you bye Deepak And for our audience, thanks for joining and for listening. In this episode, we learned about the nature of reality and naive realism with Deepak Chopra. And you can tune in to Gateways to Awakening, where we host one-on-one conversations with leading experts in wellness, well-being, and spirituality. Thanks again.